I'm Charles Horner, Senior Fellow at Hudson Institute, and happy to welcome you to this uh, discussion and this presentation, which will be led by Professor Jacobs of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we're, we at Hudson are happy for this event for more than one reason. One of the things in the China Studies program that, that we've been interested in doing is trying to <coughs> see what other people who are interested in China in other countries have to have to say and are thinking about it, mostly because they are closer to China than we are, many of them. That's one group of people. And then there are people in Europe who are, as it were, farther away from the immediate political problems and strategic issues and so on, and whose governments are less directly involved in China problems, and their perspectives for the reverse reason are interesting also. So we have a tiny relationship of sorts with Australia. Uh, we, one of our fellows, uh, John Lee, has based in Sydney, Australia at the university. And he and I have uh, written a short paper on the problems in the China Sea, South China and East China. Uh, I forgot to ask Bruce whether he knows John Lee. Maybe he does. No, I haven't met him. All right. Well, you, you, you tell him you were here, and, and he'll, be, he'll be grateful for this, grateful for this news. Uh, you know, my colleague, uh, just a little bit of sort of inside China studies uh, housekeeping and gossip now, you see. Uh, my colleague Eric Brown and I wrote an article back in 2011. It was published in a magazine called China Heritage Quarterly, which is published at the Australian National University in Canberra. And one of the reasons this was able to happen is that the China Studies program there was set up with a grant of $50 million from the national government, as I recall. So those are really the people to see. And ever since then, we do the best we can to get on the right side of those people. It's, um, those of you who remember the Watergate scandal or who have read about it, remember that the whole thing broke when the main source, Deep Throat, advised Bob Woodward, the reporter, he said, follow the money. Uh, in any case, we want to talk a little bit about Taiwan today and a couple of interesting things about it. As you probably know, there's been a lot going on in the Western Pacific and the South China Sea and the East China Sea and uh, recent uh, meetings in Singapore and polemics exchanged back and forth. And to our mind, this, all of this should be raising the significance of Taiwan in the, in the mix and draw people to it as an uh, item for discussion and analysis, but we don't think, we don't think that's uh, been happening. Secondly, in Taiwan itself in the past few months, some very interesting things have been happening politically, and um, I'll allow Bruce to correct my, my extreme... Uh, term I'm going to use for this phenomenon, but there seems to have been a kind of open rebellion among most of the population against the policy that's been pursued uh, by the government there of, of, of moving closer to the, uh, to the People's Republic of China, and that has many and complex reasons. But also, that's one of the most interesting things about it, if you pay attention to this, a lot of these arguments are arguments that are developed from history. PRC puts forward all kinds of claims in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, indeed, to Taiwan itself, which it says derive from the history of the region, history of the country. And so it's always a great uh, uh, thing to discover there's actually someone who knows about this and is actually one of the few people in the world who actually does know about it. And so with that, I'll, I'll present uh, Bruce Jacobs, and he'll say a few things, and then we hope, and I hope we'll have some interesting discussion. Thanks very much, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, 
This paper that I'm on Taiwan is actually a paper that I've given around the world. Uh, and uh, that was a, also a bit of a talk last year here in Washington. But I'm very pleased today to be here at the Hudson Institute because I'm hoping that at least some of the discussion that we have today will sort of enter government levels. Maybe that's a forlorn hope, but um, we can hope. Um, on the South and East China Sea, I've just, well, I've actually finished a paper which I originally gave in Beijing um, last, um, last September uh, and which has been revised in which I argue that the Chinese arguments for historical possession in the South China Sea and East China Sea have no historical validity. Uh, so we can talk about that too if you'd like. Um, <clears throat> in the world today, there's a widespread impression that Taiwan somehow is a part of China. And what I want to talk about today is that this widespread impression is wrong and that, in fact, Taiwan's history is quite different from that which is often drawn. And in conclusion, what I want to do is suggest some new understandings of Taiwan's history uh, provide alternative possibilities for Taiwan's future. And so I'd like to talk briefly about that. So I'll probably talk about 30 minutes, maybe closer, uh, maybe a few minutes more, and then we hopefully have discussion. So just hit the uh, good. Um, what I call Chinese colonial perspectives have distorted the writings of Taiwan's history. Thus, under the colonial dictatorship of Chiang Kai-shek, the official China yearbook declared, quote, in history and culture, Taiwan is an integral part of continental China. Similarly, the Chinese white paper on Taiwan in 1993 wrote, Taiwan has belonged to China since ancient times. And in the 2000 follow-up, it stated that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China. These perspectives have dominated an international understanding of the Taiwan problem and continue to do so today as Chinese propaganda is unrelenting. And yet, these perspectives, in fact, are relatively recent. The late Alan Walkman documented that both the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, and the Chinese Communist Party only claimed Taiwan in 1942. In fact, the so-called history of Taiwan by both the Chinese Communists and the former Chinese Nationalists is nonsense. When the Dutch came to Taiwan in 1624, there were no permanent Han Chinese uh, communities in Taiwan. I want to stress that. When the Dutch came in 1624, there were no permanent Han Chinese communities in Taiwan. Han Chinese came to Taiwan temporarily for three purposes. One, merchants came to trade with the Taiwan Aborigines. Secondly, fishermen came to fish. And thirdly, pirates came to hide. And all three groups only came to Taiwan temporarily. And the evidence for this is very clear from the Dutch documents dating from the time and I'd also note that Spanish documents showed that no Han Chinese lived in northern areas, which the Spanish controlled starting from 1626 in areas around Danshui and Jilong. Almost 50 years ago, one of the earliest scholars in, earliest Western scholars in Taiwan history, Lawrence G. Thompson, noted, quote, the most striking fact about the historical knowledge of Formosa is the lack of it in Chinese records. It is truly astonishing that this very large island should have remained virtually beyond the ken of Chinese writers until late Ming times, and he stresses that's the 17th century. Uh, Thompson writes that an early text from about 1350 may refer to Taiwan, but it mentions no Han Chinese there and states, quote, the foreign countries start with this one. Thus, when the Dutch arrived in 1624, Taiwan was an island of Austronesians the ancestors of today's Taiwan Aborigines. 
The Austronesians were divided, and no one authority united Taiwan. And yet the Austronesians uh, did trade with others, including Japanese and Chinese traders, and Austronesian products included deerskins and meat, as well as jade from the Hualien area. It was the Dutch <coughs> excuse me, who first brought Han Chinese to Taiwan as labor and agricultural workers. Some Chinese were also employed as hunters, and they almost destroyed the ecology by killing too many deer. The Dutch believed that the Chinese provided Taiwan with wealth, and Nicholas Verberg, one of the Dutch governors, said, quote, the Chinese are the only bees on Formosa that give honey. And I think it's fair to say Chinese that were brought in made money because of the Dutch administrative and military structures. Now, re-examining Taiwan's history suggests a new framework. From the arrival of the Dutch in 1624 until the death of Zhang Jingguo in 1988, Taiwan underwent rule by a sequence of six regimes, all of which came from overseas. And these six regimes were the Dutch from 1624 to 1662, the Spanish from 1626 to 1642, who ruled in North Taiwan simultaneously with the Dutch. And there's an interesting, if you know anything about uh, European history, there's an interesting conflict between the Dutch and the Spanish. And um, of course, uh, when the Dutch set up a colony in Taiwan, the Spanish felt that they had to do the same thing. And the Dutch base was in what's now Indonesia, and the Spanish base was in what is now Philippines. Then came the Zheng family uh, from 1622 to 1683, the Manchus from 1683 to 1895, the Japanese from 1895 to 1945, and the authoritarian Chinese nationalist regime from 1945 to 1988. Now, if we simply define a colonial regime as, quote, rule by outsiders for the benefit of the outsiders, then clearly all of these regimes were colonial. And this perspective is not new. Uh, Taiwanese uh, historian named Su Bung, or Sherming in, in Mandarin, made this very point in his pathbreaking history of Taiwan, first published in Japanese in 1962, later published with revisions in Chinese, and finally in a greatly abridged version in English. Most people would agree that the Dutch, Spanish, and Japanese regimes were colonial. So what I want to do today is look at the other three, which are perhaps more problematic, and demonstrate that they were colonial as well. And that, So we'll look briefly at the Zheng family regime, the Manchu regime, and the Chinese nationalists under Zhang Kai-shek and Zhang Jingguo. So first I'd like to look at the uh, Zheng family as colonialists. Zheng Chenggong, who's also known as Koxinga, or Guo Xingye in Mandarin Chinese, and his father, Zheng Zhilong, who's also known as Nicholas Yitran, had run this huge trading empires from their bases in southern Fujian. With the fall of the Ming, Zheng Chenggong remained loyal, at least on the surface, and he helped the southern Ming continue its rebellion. So the, after the Manchus were successful, the Ming family, but not really in direct line from the emperor's established a rump regime, which was called the Southern Ming, and that continued until, the, uh, 16, uh, until uh, 1662. In other words, Zheng Chenggong did at this time appear to want to restore the Ming, uh, but, and he did have some successes fighting against the Manchus until his failure to take Nanjing in 1659. But Lin Struve, who's the specialist in the Southern Ming, raises some questions about the relationship between the Southern Ming and Zheng Chenggong. She writes... In effect, Zheng's administration constituted a special government for a special zone. It was his organization. The Yongli court, that is the southern Ming court, 
always was far away, and communications between the emperor and Zheng were both slow and intermittent. So although Zheng was faultlessly conscientious on a formal level about remaining a loyal servant of the throne, actually he was free to do as he saw fit, <coughs> and in effect was king in his own sizable domain. Thus in the southeast, the symbolic presence but actual absence of a Ming court gave Zheng Chenggong the flexibility and independence that he needed to successfully conflate his own interests with those of the Ming and to perform at his best for the loyalist cause. Was Zheng Chenggong's decision to attack Taiwan <coughs> on May 1st, 1661, a simultaneous renunciation of his loyalties to the Ming? Um, and several scholars have raised this question, and Lin Struve too raises it, and she says, in the early spring of 1661, Zheng pressed his commanders to accept a proposal about which theretofore they had been unenthusiastic, that is, to remove the Zheng base to Taiwan. Again, few were happy about this, and one commander was punished for openly expressing what was on the other's minds, that Taiwan was a wild, inhospitable, disease-ridden place too far at sea. Zheng's mind was set, however, because he needed a territory that was large and more secure from the Qing, but which still was located proximate to the major East Asian maritime trade routes, in which they were basing their funds. In any case, the, successor of Zheng Chenggong, the successors of Zheng Chenggong basically lost control of all their mainland territory, except for a small bit around Xiamen. They continued to build a commercial empire that traded widely, and in the words of the well-known Taiwan historian Huang Fusan, the Zheng family operated, quote, with the status of an independent nation and conducted foreign relations with Japan, Holland, Spain, England, and other countries, end quote. The Zheng regime also used Dutch colonial institutions, though they did raise taxes. And it's interesting, parenthetically, that the Chinese nationalists, when they took over from the Japanese, did exactly the same thing. They moved into the Japanese institutional structures in Taiwan, but they also raised taxes. And finally, the Zheng regime at most doubled the population in Taiwan, the Chinese population. The Chinese or Han Chinese population in Taiwan um, went from about 30,000 to 50,000 up to maybe 50,000 to 100,000. Well, the aboriginal population was around 100,000, so the Zheng regime also constituted a minority of outsiders who ruled Taiwan. I'd like to next move to the Manchus. The Zheng regime fell in 1683, and so that's about 40 years after the uh, Manchus were successful on the mainland. Uh, and um, what happened was that Zheng Chenggong's son supported a rebellion on the mainland, which uh, was called the Rebellion of the Three Feudatories, the San Fan Zhuluan. Uh, and his, the son intervened on the side that opposed the Manchus, and originally, the Qing court had never intended to send forces overseas, but in the aftermath of the rebellion, the Manchu rulers began to, plan a, 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 to devise a plan to eliminate Zheng Jing. In 1683, the powerful Manchu Kangxi emperor himself declared Taiwan had never belonged to the Manchus or, Ta or China. Quote, Taiwan is a small pellet of land. If there is, there is nothing to be gained by taking it, and no losses in not taking it. And his son, the Yongzheng Emperor, stated in 1723, from ancient times, Taiwan has not been part of China. My holy and invincible father brought it into the territory. And those two <laughs> imperial quotes come from documents that in the, the Manchu period and in other imperial periods 
um, there was a, 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 a there were books compiled called the Shulu or the veritable records, and people would stand by near the emperor and record what the emperor said, and then these were edited. So these two quotes come from those the Shulu of those two <laughs> reign periods. Now most people who assert that Taiwan is Chinese focus on the two centuries of Manchu control from 1683 to 1895. The Manchu Empire was administratively and ideological ideologically very complex. Its rulers were all Manchus, as were many of its high officials. Manchus, for example, dominated the Grand Council, the Junjichu. As Han Chinese accounted for over 90% of the empire's population, many high officials were naturally Chinese, but the ultimate sources of power rested with the Manchus, not with the Chinese. Um, there's a very good quote I'm going to read about this empire by Justin Taig, who I guess, incidentally, was my PhD student, but it's a very good quote. And he says, at the end of the 18th century, the Qing Empire encompassed an area twice the size of Ming China. The court handled this expansion in a range of fashions without any one model of incorporation or administration. Differentiation and heterogeneity came to be the keys to the division of space within the empire. As a conquest dynasty, Qing political culture and institutions derived as much from the traditions of inner Asia as they did from the traditional Confucian political theory. Let me just read that last sentence again. As a conquest dynasty, or dynasty in America, I'm sorry, Qing political cultures and institutions derived as much from the traditions of inner Asia as they did from traditional Confucian political theory. China like Taiwan and many other places in East and Central Asia, had become part of the multinational Manchu Empire. And the Manchu rule in China differed from Manchu rule in Taiwan in at least a few respects, such as the terms of office of local, local officials. As suggested by the statement of the Kangxi Emperor above, Qing attitudes toward Taiwan remained ambivalent over their two centuries of rule. According to John Shepard, even after paying a high price to defeat the rebel Zheng regime, the court still had to be convinced that the strategic importance of Taiwan justified retaining the revenue-poor island within the empire. In Taiwan, again quoting Shepard, the state was saved the expense of the initial pacification of the natives because it inherited the system of taxation and control created by the Dutch and continued by the Zhengs. This substantially reduced the cost of administering Taiwan, yet in its first century of rule, Qing administration remained limited to the western plains of Taiwan. The situation in um, Taiwan changed somewhat in the early 19th century when Han migration into the isolated Ilan Plain in Taiwan's northeast, quote, began suddenly and on a large scale, unquote. Qing government administration only arrived in 1810 after Han Chinese colonialization of the Ilan Plain was well underway. Yet Qing government still did not claim, quote, the uncivilized parts of Taiwan. And this became clear when Qing got, the Qing government refused responsibility for protecting foreign seamen whose ships were wrecked in Aboriginal areas of Taiwan. There's a very famous case in 1867, an American ship ran aground off Pingdong in southern Taiwan and Aborigines Aborigines killed most of the surviving crew. The American consul at that time was a man named Char General Charles William Legender. And those of you that have read 19th century um, uh, uh, Chinese history, especially with foreign relations, would have bumped into his name. Anyway, he was the 
consul at the time, and he went to Taiwan and negotiated a treaty. Now, who knows who he negotiated the treaty with? That's right. Not with the Qing government, but with the Aboriginal chief, Chief Tokatok. In late, and I think that's a very significant episode. And in late 1871, matters became even more serious when Taiwan Aborigines killed 54 shipwrecked Rukuan sailors, and when the Qing said it could not be held responsible for the behavior of Taiwan Aborigines because it always allowed them large measures of freedom and never interfered in their internal affairs. That's the end of a quote. Japan responded, quote, sovereignty over a territory is evidenced by effective control. Since China, and it should be since the Qing, did not control the Formosan Aborigines, they were clearly beyond its jurisdiction. It is clear that different people in the Qing government had different perspectives. Li Hongzhong, for example, wanted to re accept responsibility for the actions of Taiwan's Aborigines, but in July 19, 1873, another group of leaders informed the Japanese foreign minister, quote, that China, actually the Qing, claimed no control over the savage tribes in the mountainous eastern half of Formosa. So in summary, the Qing record in Taiwan from the mid-18th century is one of corrupt but minimal government punctuated by periodic suppression of uprisings. And in the words of Taiwan's President Li Donghui at the end of the Japanese-Qing War uh, in 1895, the first thing the Qing Dynasty negotiators gave Japan was Taiwan. According to Li Donghui, um, Li Hongzhang, who was the Qing Dynasty lead negotiator, quote, implied he did not want Taiwan as it was land beyond civilization. The Chinese is Huawei Jidi. Uh, and a Japanese source confirms that Li Hongzhang, quote, surrendered nothing he was not prepared and glad to be rid of, except the indemnity. He always considered Formosa a curse to China and was exceedingly pleased to hand it over to Japan, and he shrewdly guessed that Japan Japan would find it a great deal more trouble than it was worth. When I keep using the word China, um, they're actually in quotes, and the word China is not correct here. It's a way that Qing has been translated into English, but um, it, it's not China per se, it's the Manchu Empire. So this analysis suggests two key points about Qing control of Taiwan. First, Qing control was at best loose, minimal, and partial and substantial parts of Taiwan remained outside of Qing control throughout the whole period of Qing rule in Taiwan. And secondly, this partial Qing control was not Chinese, but it was Manchu. And thus, despite the administration of some officials of Han Chinese ethnic origin, for Taiwan, the Qing period was another period of foreign colonial rule. Now, the third group, uh, the third period, is the Chinese national under Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Jingguo. As I noted earlier, few would have difficulty characterizing the Japanese regime as colonial. Uh, if you compare the Japanese colonial regime with the Chinese nationalist regime from 1945 to 1988, you find that the two regimes shared at least six characteristics in terms of their nature and in terms of the timing of their policies. Now, this doesn't prove per se that the Chinese nationalist regime was colonial, but I think it's highly suggestive. Now, of the six similarities, first of all, both regimes considered Taiwanese to be second-class citizens and both systematically discriminated against Taiwanese. Under the Japanese, for example, a Taiwanese never held a position above head of county. Similarly, when the Chinese Nationalist Party took over from the Japanese in 1945, Taiwanese were excluded from many jobs in both central and local government. 
In addition, under both Chiang Kai-shek and his son Chiang Jingguo, mainlanders, who account for less than 15% of Taiwan's population, always had a majority in the cabinet and the Chinese Nationalist Party's Central Standing Committee. So less than 15% of the population always dominated these two key political bodies. Right until the death of Chiang Jingguo, no Taiwanese ever held the position of Premier or Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of National Defense, Minister of Economics, Minister of Education, Minister of Finance, Minister of Justice, Director of the Government Information Office, or Chairman of the Economic Planning Commission, or any senior or security position. All of those positions were, were um, limited to mainlanders, who, as I said, were less than 15% of the population. Secondly, both regimes clamped down very hard at first, killing tens of thousands of Taiwanese. Um, there are various estimates. I'm not going to go through this. I'll save a bit of time. But um, a, a man named Ito says 32,000, quote, bandits, or more than 1% of Taiwan's population, were killed in the first period. And of course, when the Nash Chinese nationalists came, there was the famous February 28, 1947 uprising, and the number of dead uh, is estimated between 10,000 is up to 28,000 of Taiwan's leaders and educated youth. Third, both regimes continued to rely on oppression for about 25 years. During the Japanese colonial period, this was the period of military governors, strong rule through the police, and continued repression. Um, of course, during uh, the Chinese nationalist period, this was the period after uh, February 28th of the White Terror. And in both cases, there were a fair number of people executed for political purposes or for political reasons. Fourth, and this is very interesting, owing to both international and domestic circumstances, both colonial regimes liberalized after about a quarter of a century. When I use the word liberalized, I'm not talking about democracy. We can talk about that later if you want. Towards the end of World War I, Woodrow Wilson gave his speech about self-determination. The Koreans had a very major revolt called the March 1st, 1919 revolt. And of course, Korea was the other big Japanese colony. Uh, and the liberalization which took place under Taisho democracy at this time enabled public discussion in Japan of various policies. And these discussions began to influence Japanese colonial policies in Taiwan and led to the appointment of civilian governors from October 1919 until September 1936. And while police repression continued, this was also a period when Taiwanese, often in cooperation with liberal Japanese, began their political movements. And similarly, under the Chinese Nationalist Party in the early 1970s, with Taiwan's defeat in the United Nations, the Diaoyutai movement, the activities of the, magazine, the intellectual magazine, Dashue Zhaozhi, and the promotion of Jiang Jingguo to the premiership in 1972, Taiwan began to liberalize. Fifth, as both regimes came under pressure, they again stepped up repression. Under the Japanese, the repression came with World War II, the appointment of military governors in 1936, and the push towards assimilation under the Kominka movement. In, in, Japan, in the Japanese period, there was a long period which was called doka, which is tonghua, which is the normal term used for assimilation. But they weren't really pushing assimilation at that time. When they really were pushing assimilation was under the Kominka movement, uh, where people in Taiwan were to become um, subjects of the emperor, and, and Japanese language was pushed much harder, taking of Japanese names was pushed, etc. Um, and this also took place in, in, in Korea. Uh, under the Kuomintang, repression occurred following the Kaohsiung incident of December 10, 1979. 
And the sixth item, which is also very interesting, is both regimes tried to make Taiwan's, Taiwanese speak their national language. Oh, I haven't got it up there. All right. Anyway, this is the sixth one, which I added later. And um, the Chinese characters are guoyu. In Japanese, it's kokuyo, kokugo. Uh, and basically, what they were trying to do, this is part of their larger cultural attempts to make Taiwanese, uh, ja second-class Japanese and Chinese speaking the so-called national language. Now, ultimately, the Allied powers defeated the Japanese and forced them to leave Taiwan. And reforms in the last 18 months of Jiang, Jiang Jingguo's life, the accession of Li Donghui to the presidency, and the cooperation between the moderate elements in the Chinese nationalists and moderate elements in the new uh, Democratic Progressive Party led to the end of the Chinese nationalist uh, colonial regime and the island's democratization. Now, and this is key, under these colonial regimes, Taiwanization was impossible. Only with the development of democratization under Li Donghui, President Li Donghui, could Taiwanization survive and thrive. Um, this now brings us to the topic of Taiwanization. And I want to turn to this topic, which in Taiwan is referred to as Bantuhua. Uh, sometimes that's translated as localization, but I think in English, Taiwanization is a much better translation. And as I said, under each of these colonial regimes, Taiwanese could not push Taiwan identity without incurring the wrath of the ruling regime. Um, Furthermore, Taiwanization under, these, under both the Japanese and the KMT regimes was limited in content, and um, its politicization was very limited to the liberal periods in both regimes. So what is Taiwanization? First of all, it's not democratization. Taiwaniz Taiwanization and democratization were closely linked in Taiwan's history, but they're not the same. Taiwanization emphasizes identification with Taiwan, consciousness of Taiwan, and even a Taiwan nationalism. Under both the Japanese and Chinese nationalist colonial regimes, which treated Taiwanese as second-class citizens, appeals to Taiwan identity provided an important attraction to and source of strength for the opposition. Now, clearly, not all those who promoted democracy favored a separate Taiwan, uh, and this led to splits in the movement for democracy in Taiwan. In addition, being Taiwanese increasingly means, quote, I am not Chinese. Now, this isn't immediately obvious. For example, myself, um, I have no difficulty simultaneously identifying as an Australian, as a Victorian, I live in the state of Victoria, and as a Melbourneian. Um, but as Taiwanization takes hold in Taiwan, identifying with Taiwan more and more means not identifying as Chinese. And under contemporary Taiwanization, being Taiwanese is not being Chinese. Now, this takes a variety of forms. For example, many Taiwanese reject saying that their culture is a subculture of Chinese culture. So the, the Chinese nationalists would say, Taiwan culture is a subculture of Chinese culture. But, the, but modern people say, no, it isn't. They say such things as, Taiwan culture has many elements, including Austronesian, Aboriginal, Dutch, Spanish, Manchu, Japanese, Chinese, and Western culture. Um, from the early 1990s, under President Li Donghui to the present, Taiwanization includes enjoying Taiwanese foods, such as sweet, uh, sweet potato gruel, in, in Hokkien, and becoming interested in Taiwan's history, society, literature, and language. 
Wang Fuchang has pointed out that the publications about Taiwan published in Taiwan soared after the death of Zhang Jingguo. Before Zhang Jingguo died, there might be 10 books a year. And then within a couple of years, it was in the hundreds, if not thousands. Politically, the use of Taiwanization in Taiwan's politics became more important in the early 1980s following the Kaohsiung incident among the opposition Wai, And it has substantially increased in importance since democratization began under the leadership of President Li Donghui and the then opposition Democratic Progressive Party. Now, all evidence suggests that Taiwanization is an ever-increasing phenomenon. And there are lots and lots of polls in Taiwan, surveys, which all demonstrate the same traditions. But I've picked this poll, which is from the Election Studies Center in, uh, at National Zhengzhou University in Taiwan, which is not political. It's not run by the DPP or by the KMT or uh, a, a, a very partisan newspaper. This is a, a, a scholarly um, poll. And every six months, people are asked the same question. Are you Taiwanese and Chinese? Are you just Taiwanese or are you just Chinese? And, and the, does this have a, um, yeah. So the, um, the blue line is those who identify only as Chinese. So you can see in 1992 when this, when this um, poll began, um, the, over one in four identified as only Chinese, and that number is now down under 4%. And the green line there is the line which shows people who identify as Taiwanese. And 1992 was about one in six, and now it's over 50%. And what's really interesting is this increase over 50% who identify only as Taiwanese took place after Mind Zhou was inaugurated. So Mind Zhou, who ran on a, a policy of, well, we're all Chinese, actually uh, this increase took past the 50% mark took place after he was inaugurated and has continued to increase. This magenta line is, oops, this magenta line, which one, that one, uh, that's, that's answered that they're both Taiwanese and um, Chinese. And it's gone in from the mostly in the 40s down into the high 30s. So it's, it's, a, it's now declining a bit as the Taiwanese-only line has increased. And this black line is really interesting because that's the no response or do not know. And that's gone from over 10% to less than 4%. And I would suggest that shows two things. First of all, it shows people are no longer afraid to answer polls. So in the early years of democracy, you know, people, well, if I answer this, was the government going to come after me? Uh, but the second thing is identity is an issue that is talked about constantly in Taiwan. So no one anymore says, oh, I don't know what I am. I mean, they, there's, you know, this is something people are thinking about and talking about. Um, there's a very interesting study. Let me just get the figures here. Yeah, by two scholars who have taken, to, took this data apart in more detail and looked by ethnic groups um, from the, uh, from 1994 until the year 2000. And what this showed was all of the ethnic groups were moving in the same direction. So even though uh, Taiwanese, Minan people, had a higher identification with, with being only Taiwanese, that in number increased. And those that had been of, of the Hokkien or, or Taiwanese group said that they, their Chinese identity was going down. But the same thing happened with Aborigines. The same thing happened with Hakka. And the same thing happened with mainlanders. 
And the mainlanders who said, I am only Chinese in 1994 was 55.6%, 55.6. And by the year 2000, that had declined to 29.9%. So it was over 55% and became less than 30% in a few years. Now, what are some of the, um, um, the implications? The, the same organization does a poll where they offer people six options, and I've combined them into three, uh, which is put these two together, which is towards independence, put these through towards status quo and towards unification. And if you take out the do not know group, those that are towards unification is roughly 10%. And those that are for moving towards independence is about a quarter, and those that maintain the status quo are 60%. Now, I would maintain that, in fact, the status quo is already independence. So what you need to do is, if you want to look at the reality of it, is combine status quo and independence, because Taiwan is now a separate place, and if you maintain the status quo, it doesn't become part of the People's Republic. So the, basically, I think this poll shows that the number of people that want independence and move towards China, or even in the future, is still a very small minority. Now, I'm getting towards the end, so we can have some discussion. Another factor which I think is important in discussing Taiwan today is its democratization. In Asia, democratization is relatively rare. And in fact, I would argue there are only four Asian countries today which have stable, consolidated democracy. And the democracies of India and Japan date back to after World War II. The democracies of South Korea and Taiwan date back to about 1988. And I think it's fair to say no other Asian nation has consolidated its democracy, though such places as Indonesia, Mongolia, the Philippines have made important steps. But I mean, just look recently what's happened in Thailand. You know, you've had elections there, and boom, the military came back in. And I think that's a potential worry, and they, I don't think these other countries have consolidated in the way that, say, South Korea and Taiwan have. Now, this democratization in Taiwan has given Taiwan important new support in the democratic world. In the past, some places like the United States supported Taiwan because it was anti-communist. Now, such support, uh, now many more support on the basis that it's democracy, democratic, and such support is much more widespread and across parties. So in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the European nations, and Canada, many parliamentarians on both sides of politics support Taiwan as a democracy, and governments in these countries are also much more sympathetic to Taiwan. Taiwan's democracy is blessed with having swing voters comprise 15 to 20 percent of, of the electorate. Now, these voters do not vote on the basis of party loyalty or ideology. Rather, they examine the candidates and their programs before each election and vote for whom they perceive to be the best candidate. And I met, I've been to Taiwan for all the elections in, in recent years, and many people in 2008 who I knew had voted for Chen Shui-bian in 2000 and 2004 told me, I'm, not, I'm voting for Ma Ying-jeou this time. And they said they hoped that Ma would fix the economy and improve government efficiency. But many of them added a rider. They said, if Ma doesn't do a good job, we'll vote the other way next time, meaning they would vote DPP again. And in fact, many voters who had voted for Ma in 2008 switched to the DPP though not enough to change the, the election result. Now, um, I want to return to Taiwan's early history to make the final point. 
And, and this is, and I believe this is that people around the world and in Taiwan have been ensnared into defining Taiwan's future within a Chinese framework. And this framework has only the alternatives unification, which is often falsely called reunification, and independence. So the framework that's put up that people have accepted, what I would argue much too easily, is the unification independence framework. And I would argue that Taiwan's leaders and people and people overseas need to think about Taiwan in terms of its gone through a decolonization process rather than in terms of unification and independence. By far the vast majority of countries around the world have experienced colonization and they have often expressed support for other countries undergoing the decolonization process. And I think Taiwan needs to explain to the world that Taiwan's so-called One China policy was established under the colonial dictatorship of Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Qingguo, and that the Taiwanese people had no say in the matter. Taiwan also needs to explain to the world that it is undergoing a process of decolonization and that the issues of unification and independence are left over from the colonial past and they are relevant to Taiwan today. Now, Taiwan is Taiwan. It's a sovereign nation that meets all of the requirements of current international law. And I'm not a specialist in international law, but my friends who are tell me that the key document defining uh, what a state is, a sovereign state, is the Convention of Rights and Duties of States. And Article 1, there it is quoted, a state has a permanent population, a defined territory, government, and capacity to enter in relations with other states. And clearly, Taiwan has all of those. Furthermore, Article 3, which people tend to neglect, says the political existence of the state is independent of recognition by other states. So if you meet the four conditions and you have no states recognizing you, you, according to international law, are still an, an independent state. So just in quick summary, Taiwan is not China. Should, and, and should Taiwan's leaders begin to educate the world that Taiwan faces decolonization and not questions of unification or independence, then I believe it would receive much more international support than at present. Thank you very much. Shall we open it up? Sure, we may have uh, little devices, I don't know. And we just appreciate, uh, if you have a question, just say, uh, who you are, and if you have an affiliation, say what it is. Um, well, someone uh, uh, here's someone with his hand up. Uh, Abe Sholsky from uh, Hudson Institute. Th thank you very much. That was uh, extremely interesting. Um, it seems to me that there's a, a sort of a way, a, a fundamental issue that a lot of this kind of rests on, which is the fact that when they got rid of the Qing <coughs> in 1911 and so forth, and then the, you, know, you finally get republicanism in China, the decision was made early on, even before the communists, that everything that the Qing had was going to be part of the Republic of China. So I mean, in a sense, um, we're really dealing with the same issue here as the issue of, of Xinjiang, the issue of Tibet and the rest of it. Well, there's it? a lot actually that I would disagree, I think, factually that you're wrong. Um, the um, 1935, 36 Constitution, the May 5th Constitution, the Provisional Constitution, listed all the, all the provinces. Taiwan was not listed. Um, Mao Zedong said in his interview with Edgar Snow very clearly that Taiwan should be independent. And it's only, as I said, in 1942 
that um, Taiwan was seen by either the nationalists or the communists mm -hmm. to be to be mm -hmm. Chinese. So that statement that everything that you know the Qing controlled uh, belonged to uh, belonged to China isn't necessarily the case. Furthermore, um, the um, Taiwan had, had become in 1895, not 1911, had become part of Japan. So. Yeah, yeah, no, but it just it it I see. No, it's an interesting point because it struck me that if I were in Beijing listening to your talk, the first thing that would bother me would be, well, is he then going to say that Tibet's not part of China? Is he then going to say that Xinjiang's not part of China? Is he going to say that, you know, the Ming? Well, last September, when I gave yeah. this talk in China, I said very clearly that the, um, that the Chinese rule in Tibet and in Xinjiang is colonial, and I pointed out why. You know, you have outsiders coming in and running it. Uh, you have outside companies coming in, bringing the resources back, not employing local yeah. people. I said that quite clearly. Yeah, uh, well, but I mean, I think that might, you know. Well, I think it upset some of them, yeah, but yeah. In, terms of the, <laughs> in terms of the Taiwan history, they didn't know enough to be able to deal with these yeah. sorts of issues. So, I mean, okay, but I mean, I, I guess the key point where, you, where, where what you're saying that is interest to me is that that this the, the issue of Taiwan can, in a sense, be separated from the whole issue of whether China inherited all the Ming, well, all, all the Qing uh, um, properties, so well, to speak. Well, I think if you draw a parallel, say for Algeria, and you look back in the 1950s. Algeria looked pretty, pretty French, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. And the French looked pretty solid there. And look what happened within yeah. a couple years. And I think a very similar situation is happening in Xinjiang. There was also a very interesting parallel with Algeria in that colons, or French people, who migrated to Algeria and set up life, they were over 10% of the population. Uh, so, you know, this, the, the parallels are, are actually stronger than you're suggesting, and they, I think, would show a different future for Xinjiang and for Tibet as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, m much, much more so in a sense, given mm. that the the people we're calling the Taiwanese were, after all, I mean, there were there's sort of three layers of uh, of population that you've mm. discussed. I mean, the Aboriginal population, a quote Taiwanese population, mm. which is Chinese but came hundreds of years ago, and then a mainlander population. I mean, you know, you, no one would today say Americans are Brits, would they? No, no one would even say Canadians are Brits, if, or French Canadians, or, or Australians are Brits. I mean, you know, just because your origins come from a place doesn't mean you continue that way. And again, I think that's the way Chinese uh, today, politics today operates, which is out of, out of sync with reality. Bill Tucker, I've done a lot of work in Taiwan, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I've been to the island many times. Um, uh, do you think uh, China uh, would try to take Taiwan by force, if not for the protection of the United States? And would they be successful if, okay. if they tried by force? If I can do a bit of propaganda, I have a four-volume book coming out in within a month or two, published by Brill called Critical Reason Readings in Taiwan, China-Taiwan Relations. Um, I'm not a specialist in military things, but what I found fa fascinating was in reading what military specialists were saying was even without the United States uh, and using you know, modern technology, certainly beginning of this century, um, 
it wasn't a clear-cut thing at all that the Chinese could do it. Um, and there were the studies I was reading, and many of which have been incorporated in this, in this four-volume book, um, raise substantial issues. Of course, then, there's the United States on side. And in Australia, we're on side, too, although not necessarily as militarily, but certainly in terms of providing intelligence and things. And this became very clear with WikiLeaks. One of my former students wrote on Australia-Taiwan, uh, and he hypothesized this. Then between the time he finished his PhD and his book was published, WikiLeaks came out, and boom, he had the evidence right there. We, we said we would do it. Uh, and I think we aren't the only ones. Uh, so um, I think it would be very difficult for China. Uh, and even if it was, well, if, if the Chinese made a full attempt to invade, um, I think the danger to their own regime would be very high. And uh, so that would be something they would have to consider. So I'm, I'm optimistic on that. I, I'm in some ways almost more worried by some of the people in Taiwan today, um, who, many of whom are in government, whose thinking I think is a bit wishy-washy. I think when the next presidential election comes, there'll be a big change, no matter, well, I can't say no matter, but if Eric Tzu wins from the Kuomintang, I would imagine there'd be a big change, and I think whoever would run for the DPP would also create some changes. I hope, I hope that answers your question. Uh, g'day, Bruce. Um, I'm Matthew Robertson. I write for the Epoch Times. Um, you kind of explain, I mean, a really good argument for why the Chinese claims on Taiwan aren't legitimate. Um, clearly, the Chinese, whether something is legitimate or not, they can, you know, make it seem as though it is. So, I mean, they still have great interests in pressing their claims on Taiwan. So, I mean, what do you think will be the key for Taiwan um, to escape that, so to speak? I mean, even aside from the military thing, there are, um, I mean, they proceed upon multiple lines at once, and we saw that, you know, with the um, services trade, you know, full market. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that's um, a threat? I mean, mm -hmm. and how do you see that playing out? I mean, just with that particular uh, instrument um, of, 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 you know, Chinese attempt to control, how do you see that going? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, your question actually comes to the r issue that Charles raised before about, you know, the question of the services trade agreement, the issue of the sunflower movement coming up, and, and sort of recent politics in Taiwan. So, um, the, the Ma government has felt a high priority to be able to deal with China. Uh, and the Chinese, in some ways, have made it a bit easier for the Ma government. Um, I point out, for example, all the air agreements which have you know, moved on since the Ma government came on. They were actually negotiated under the Chen Shui-bin government, but the Chinese refused to implement them at the time because they wanted the credit to go to the Ma government. And the Ma government, in a sense, has responded. And, and, and it hasn't been 100% bad. Uh, I would point out the diplomatic truce, uh, I think, has worked well for Taiwan. Uh, in the diplomatic truce, what, what both sides said tacitly, not uh, China, Taiwan said it explicitly. The Chinese have never said it explicitly. But what they, uh, in a sense, tacitly agreed on is that no side will establish relations with a country which was established with the other side. So um, when um, was the Gambia broke relations with Taiwan recently, China didn't establish relations with the Gambia. 
And in Paraguay, when um, President Lugo ran in his, his he ran for office in, as f to run for president, he said, "I'm going to establish relations with China." He never did. And there are other cases like that. So uh, that has been to the advantage of both China and Taiwan because they were spending an awful lot of money trying to win diplomatic allies, uh, gain, gain recognition. So that, in a sense, has been a plus. Um, there are also other areas which I think have been a sort of a plus for Taiwan. For example, the World Health Assembly, which is part of the World Health Organization. Taiwan now goes as, a, um, as an official observer. And the letters that I've seen that come from the World Health Organization refer to the Minister of Health. I think it's Chinese Taipei, but there's no, um, there's no denigration. It's not made part of, of China. In the letters that come, it, Taiwan is not made part of China. Now, under some of the World Health Organizations, there are times when Taiwan is listed as part of China, but that's not the official communications coming to Taiwan. So there have been gains. Um, but I think the Ma government has put too much hope on in economic ties with China. And in fact, there have been concern within the Ma administration. So for example, when um, uh, Wu Duni became premier, he he said quite clearly and explicitly at, 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 at press conferences, we are over-dependent on our trade and investment with China, and we need to establish further trade with other areas of the world. And he named every other place, you know, Europe, US, Japan, Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. He just named everywhere. Uh, and, and yet this sort of dependence has continued. The Ma government has said to some extent, and again, I haven't ever seen the evidence for this, but they say if we establish better, we, if we establish the ECFA agreement, the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement with China, this will enable us to establish free trade agreements with other countries. Now, again, I've pushed very hard on this on interviews with senior people in Taiwan, and I've never seen the evidence. They just sort of, well, we've been told this. But again, there's sort of no evidence. And to the best of my knowledge, the two free trade agreements which have been negotiated in recent years have nothing to do with ECFA. And that's the one is with New Zealand, and the other is with Singapore. The New Zealand agreement I'm rather more familiar with. Um, this is an agreement which is fairly partial. It, it, it doesn't, if you were to say you're going to cover 100% of all goods and services, I think it might cover 50%. Uh, its importance, in a sense, say, for example, with Australia, is Australia, to the best of my knowledge, has no – if we want to establish a, a, a free trade agreement with, with Taiwan, we will. And to the best of my knowledge, there's no, nothing blocking it from China. The, the New Zealand agreement um, we were looking at as an example of what sort of could be established and what, what were the parameters. So we were looking at it in those circumstances. People who are more specialists in this say free trade agreements take a huge amount of expertise and they take a long, long time to negotiate. And um, so you can only do a few at a time. And um, so Taiwan was fairly busy with New Zealand and Singapore. We were busy with other countries. We've just signed agreements with Japan and, and Korea. Uh, so, you know, you, this is, there's a, a, a slowish process which takes place as these things develop. Um, but I've never seen the argument carefully made that shows that signing ECFA would help free trade agreements with Taiwan. 
Now, the latest thing that happened was, as a result of ECFA and a series of agreements which took place, Taiwan signed this services and trade agreement. Again, I'm not a specialist in this area, but people say it gave too much away. For example, in the publication industry, both sides opened up to the other. But in, Ta- in China, in fact, uh, publications are very heavily restricted. So... Um, you know, if the Taiwan industry can go to China, it's actually going to be controlled, but the Taiwan industry can come to Taiwan and is out of control, you know, has no control, well, then it's not a fair agreement. And I understand certain of the provisions said the Chinese could come to Taiwan, but the Taiwanese could only go to Fujian for, for developing certain areas. So there were some inequalities around the place. Um, and as a person that sort of watched how Australia's service industries, which are very important to us, have had difficulties in China, I'm also concerned about whether the services in, in, from Taiwan can develop well. Um, for example, banking. Um, we've had huge troubles, uh, even though banking is supposed to be opened up. It hasn't really. Uh, and, you know, are Chinese banks going to have the same difficulties? And, in fact, people in Taiwan have suggested, yes, the same sorts of difficulties. So the student movement was, in a sense, protesting that the current government was going to push through this agreement, which had been negotiated, in which there hadn't really been proper consultation with the interest groups in Taiwan, and in which it was felt that too much had been given away. So that was sort of the basis for the sunflower movement starting to grow. And what was interesting was, um, first of all, when the police originally came in, the Speaker of the Parliament, who has had his problems with, with President Ma, uh, stopped it. And so the, the protesters occupied the legislature for three weeks. Now, part of the problem was that the legislature in Taiwan has never been adequately reformed. And um, there are certain procedures which are just silly. And um, the Guomindang man who was in charge of the negotiations at the time, which is, he, rather than discuss them properly and the agreements had been made, everything needed to be discussed and gone through proper procedures, he just passed it like that. And um, so that was one of the things that led to the protest. Um, it's interesting that the, before the protests ended, the, um, there was great sympathy in Taiwan and a half million people gathered in Taipei to protest. I mean, half a million is an awful lot of people. I was... Um, in my earlier life, I participated in the march in Washington, and we thought we were great with 250,000. Uh, so half a million is huge. Um, and then what's also interesting is the Sunflower Movement ended itself, in a sense. It withdrew. And um, I think that's a very interesting move, too. Um, just in terms of politically, I don't think the Ma government ever dealt sufficiently with the Sunflower Movement. And uh, President Ma had a big press conference, and he allowed three questions. And then the Taiwan reporters protested. They said, you know, you've had this big press conference, and you've had three silly questions, and we want to continue. So they were forced to continue the press conference on a bit. Um, But, um, yeah, I don't know whether that's a long way of answering your question. Uh, But I I think Taiwan needs to think about more than just the easy solution of investing in, and, and trading with Taiwan. And, of course, there are lots of investors in other places like Vietnam. And, and to some extent, you know, the, the investors uh, in Vietnam suffered recently with the anti-Chinese 
Chinese rice. Um, but um, there needs to be more of that, not less. Can I just add one, uh, one point about what Bruce has just said and come to the questions that have been raised? Um, I'm a history major, not a China watcher. And the question would therefore be the, you know, what's, what's going to be the fate of this great thing called the Qing Empire or the Manchu Empire? Mm. Mentioned that my colleague uh, Eric Brown and I published something in a magazine uh, journal called, and, uh, but the point we wanted to make there, this was at the time of the 100th anniversary, the end of the Manchu dynasty, was to draw parallels between the Manchus as a self-conscious group of people and especially the imperial clan and the Communist Party of China. Uh, and so the, the, the heirs, as it were now, to the Manchu Empire, the Xinjiang, uh, let's just call it the CCP Empire. Right? And as Bruce says, there's an issue, therefore, of, of decolonization, of independence, of national liberation, of all of these sorts of things. And just to encourage people to look at the different parts of the CCP Empire and aspirational parts, as Taiwan surely is, and see how it's going. Well, we know what's going on in Taiwan. Uh, I guess it's yesterday or today, depending on, on, on how you look at the international dateline. Government in, in Beijing came out with a long paper explaining to the people who live in Hong Kong with the agreement whereby Hong Kong became a special administrative region with its uh, one party, uh, you know, one system, one country, two systems, and so on and so forth. It really doesn't mean that at all, namely that Beijing will do what it wants to do, and the reason is why. Well, there's just been an awful lot of backtalk culminating on June 4 with a demonstration of almost 200,000 people, almost 200,000 people in little Hong Kong. I mean, Taiwan has all of 23 million people and get a half a million out. But in little Hong Kong, which has, what, six, seven, I don't know, get 200,000 people out to commemorate the Tiananmen uh, a massacre. So that is not a good sign from the point of view of how that part of the empire is going. Uh, Tibet has been mentioned, and that's another place of growing instability, mm -hmm. and there's been hundreds, not well reported in the West, but hundreds of self-immolations. So whether it's useful as a tactic, I don't know. And the Chinese government, the Beijing government, has been very concerned about <coughs> essentially an independent separatist movement in Xinjiang. Uh, bombs have been exploding here and there, and they've been, they have these amazing displays of, 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 of a public sentencing of group of miscreants in a stadium. <laughs> 55,000 people are herded into the stadium to watch the sentencing, and people are encouraged to look for terrorists and so on. So to be sure, they may be overreacting, but they're taking it very seriously. And in China itself, and here we refer to people who pay attention to China itself, seems to be an enormous struggle inside the Communist Party of China that's unfolding right now. It's extremely brutal, extremely vicious, and it's not clear who or why but that's sort of what's going on, and of course our uh, China, if I pick a point of personal privilege, our China watching community says, oh, there's an anti-corruption campaign going on. Mm. Well, there's more than an anti-corruption campaign going on, and there rather, it still has, the struggle here still hasn't been resolved. There's a serious purge on, and so all of these things taken together bared on the, on the subject of whether or not now is a good time to start a war over Taiwan. And some could argue it's a good time to start a war with Taiwan, and others might argue it's a bad time, I mean, from the point of view of, of, uh, uh, of what the party needs. The enormous benefit of what Bruce has to say is that there is a lot to be understood about this enormous piece of land and the billion and a half people who live there 
which we as Americans don't bother to take the time to do and rather accept these categories which are laid out for us because they are uh, seemingly convenient. What they mean, what they mean, I don't know. But that's why we here, I want to say, have, have for some time viewed his work as extremely valuable and important and needs to be uh, spread around and, and uh, known more about and, and argued with if people want to argue with it. But uh, it, it represents a very, it seems to be a point of view that seemingly, yeah, is sort of seemingly contrarian and yet seems to be capturing the mood of the times mm -hmm. uh, quite nicely, even though none of that was going on there is his fault. I'd like to make three sort of comments yeah. to respond to what Charles said. <laughs> um, and in terms of what we were talking about before with Xinjiang and Tibet as colonies, um, I recommend, if you haven't seen it, see the film The Battle of Algiers. I mean, you know, it's... It shows the nastiness of, 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 of both colonial repression and fighting against it. And I think if you look at that film, I think you'd have some feel for what's going on in Xinjiang now with all the sort of violence that's taking place. And I'm not supportive of the violence, but I think, and then remember a few years later, Algeria became independent. I'm not saying Algeria independence is good for the Algerians even, but that the sort of anti-colonial movements are very strong. Um, in terms of the Manchus, um, I think it's important to realize that during the Manchu Empire and also during the Mongol Empire, China was a defeated nation. It was incorporated in a foreign, foreign empire. Uh, and if you read back to those periods of time what the Chinese scholars were saying, you know, they were in despair. These foreigners are running us. And we're, if we use modern terminology, China was a colony of those two empires. And what's interesting to talk about this with my friends in China today, and I still have a few friends there, even though they don't agree with me and what I say, at least publicly, their argument is, oh, well, those periods of time, like the Mongols and the Manchus, actually just the minority nationalities running us for a little while. I mean, but, you know, there's not an admission that this was a defeat for China. Um, I guess just in terms of the struggles in China today, in, in terms of the issues we're raising, I don't think whoever wins will, will make any difference. There won't be any change. Uh, all of the contenders in China today are big China enthusiasts. They're ultra-nationalists, and some might be more corrupt than others, but I don't think anyone that has the possibility of winning out today in China in the current sorts of struggles within the CCP would, would change any of the policies we're talking about right now. Let's just do one more, I think, if, uh, or... Uh, There's two there. And, and go... There's Mike and... Or if someone has a... Um, <clears throat> thanks, Bruce. Mike Fonte. I'm the director of the Democratic Progressive Party's mission here in Washington. I think it's important to play out here, you know it better than I, but the U.S. policy towards Taiwan and whether it does or does not consider it part of China. Uh, I think the whole question of Taiwanization was interesting when Kissinger showed the draft of the Shanghai communique mm. to Rogers. Rogers said, wait a minute. Not all Chinese on both sides mm. of the strait believe that Taiwan is part of China. Mm. A lot of people in Taiwan don't. I think what your, what your talk speaks about is the growing recognition or consciousness within the Taiwan world that this is not, that this is not true. And it's important, again, you know it better than I, that the U.S. position is clear. We recognize the PRC, but we only acknowledge the Chinese yep. position that Taiwan is part of China. And what that leaves is the future of Taiwan is to be decided mutually and peacefully. 
And in that context, the people of Taiwan have to have the right mm -hmm. to at least say no to anything they don't like and yes. And this is a really important piece which not all of our friends in this town always acknowledge themselves. Oh, you're spot on with that. And um, of course, when the, all those negotiations with Kissinger in Beijing were taking place, Chiang Kai-shek was still in power. So there was a lot, you know, you couldn't, sorts of things that I've raised today, you couldn't talk about. Uh, but, uh, you know, they've become more available since democratization. I, 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 in terms of Chinese on both sides recognize, uh, you know, say that Taiwan is part of China, and that, you know, there are non-Chinese in Taiwan. I wonder, I've read some things recently that that might have just been fortuitous luck in, in, the, in the drafting. Uh, but um, I think very clearly the United States today um, recognizes that Taiwan is something else. And I've argued uh, in some writing that I've done recently um, that countries like the United States, Australia, and many other countries with these big missions in Taipei and would have big missions here from Taiwan have in fact de facto recognized Taiwan as a country. But they can't say it. Otherwise you have a tantrum from across the straits. But in fact, I would argue that's what's taking place. So uh, just to look at some of the changes, um, um, people who were in AIT, um, officially in the old days, were left AIT for the years they were in Taiwan, and then they resumed their careers. Um, my understanding is that's not the case anymore. And of course, the, the, the cable traffic used to be directed via the officially through the AIT office in Virginia at the time before getting to state. Uh, there's no pretense about that anymore, I don't think. Uh, and in Australia, we've just upgraded our office to the Australian office from the Australian Commerce and Industry office, and I think that's good. It's more reality. Mm -hmm. well, no AIT, American Institute in Taiwan is the name that's given yeah. to a private corporation that was set up to conduct the unofficial relations between the American and Taiwan people and 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 so on. It's a kind of day as you said, it's a kind of de facto diplomatic yeah. outpost, but I very know, interesting that the Japanese are the one that set this model up in, in nineteen seventy two. And it's it's now very widespread. I think it's interesting. And as I said, I, in fact I think it's evolved if it wasn't at the time it has now evolved to de facto relations. There's a question over here. Uh, my name is Nick Rustinell. Just, I guess, personal interest. I'm doing uh, some research assistance at the Eurasia Center. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned during your presentation that um, I think you said the Kuomintang after the uh, Baoxing incident and also Japan during World War II in response to increased pressure uh, went through periods of sort of repression and, and heightened authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, you know, there's a lot of comparisons now, valid or not, to China's internal problems making it into sort of this, uh, you know, imperial Germany where it's getting more aggressive abroad. And I'm wondering if you think that China's sort of increased aggression abroad, which is likely to continue, I think, um, certainly in territorial claims. I wonder um, what your opinion would be on the impact it's going to have on sort of Taiwanese, you know, authoritarian spectrum. Well, let me deal with the first thing with the comparisons with the mainland. Um, I think taking the imperial German comparison is a cop-out. It doesn't work. The real comparison is with the Nazis. And I don't have the whole list of their six, six comparisons, 
um, authoritarian states, ultranationalistic, substantial concentration camps, substantial amounts of murders. I would point out that the Nazis only began their s systematic uh, you know, death camps in 1942, so it was quite late on. Uh, and, and, and in terms of dealing with the Nazis, there was a tendency to appease. And I think many of our friends uh, today here in Washington feel that the best way to deal with the Chinese is to appease and to, they'll be right if we treat them right. Well, I think the Nazis showed that wasn't the case. And, and another case which is also very similar would be the Japanese militaries up to through World War II. So it strikes me, and this is something which, oh boy, have I copped it in the past. <laughs> How can you be so stupid to compare the Nazis and the Chinese? Um, but I think there's a lot there. Uh, and um, the claims on the Sudetenland, for example, um, because the, 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 the Nazis claimed them because they were people of German background who spoke German. I mean, they might have identified as as Czechs or not, it's another issue. But you know, they claim that that belongs to us naturally, and much of the way the Chinese are claiming both Taiwan and uh, areas in the South and East China Sea, um, their arguments are the same. Now, I've argued historically they're wrong, uh, but it seems to me that's the real parallel. Now, what you just said about I, I wondered if you said what you wanted to say. You said about Taiwan yeah, dictatorship. Sort of in the face then of, you know, if, if you think China, I, I think it's fair to say that China will continue with sort of territorial aggression mm. and asserting those claims. I was just wondering what you think that will do to the domestic politics of okay. Taiwan, if sort of under that pressure they'll become more or less authoritarian. What's really interesting in Taiwan and in South Korea, the, what you say, the consolidation of democracy has been very strong. There's no one basically who wants an authoritarian government. And um, in both places, um, the role of the military has changed considerably. The, the likelihood of a successful coup, I think, would be um, is almost nil. So it's, it's you know people like they like democracy. They like being able to speak up, and uh, I think it's the right way to go. Uh, and I, I I don't see that as a danger. Uh, I could see an imposed. Uh, any, you know, any, you know, if there was a foreign invasion and that succeeded, I could see an imposed uh, authoritarian government on Taiwan, but it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be one that people in Taiwan had set up, and there would be a lot of opposition to it too, just like there's opposition in Xinjiang and Tibet today. Um, so, yeah, I don't see that as a, a very realistic possibility. One more question? Can we do that, Charles? Sure. No, as, as if you're, I'm as happy if to you're stay a long, long marcher here. You I'm can, happy uh, to stay put. I, I okay, enjoy no, chatting. Do it. <laughs> My name's Diamond Liu. Since you are in the United States now, will you do a review of, um, of the United States policy where it has been helpful or detrimental to Taiwan's uh, independence? Um. That's a broad question. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. The, did someone want to have the question repeated? Um, how how has the U.S. policy helped Taiwan independence? Okay. Um, 
I think what U.S. policy has done is not pushed independence per se, but has pushed democratization. And people in Taiwan, because of their background and their ways of thinking, are you know, saying, at least de facto, we're, we're separate and should continue to be so. And the United States policy is, in a sense, by saying the, any changes across the straits need to be done peacefully, not by, by force. That, that's been United States policy very clearly. And I think it dates back to the um, Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, so I think in that sense, it's been helpful. But the sort of increase and just, oh, it's, it's all. The increase that I showed you before, the Taiwan identity, I mean, that's something that's taken place primarily in the context of, of, of democratization. Although the repression of the Chinese colonial government under Chiang Kai-shek and Jiang Jingguo, the repression of Taiwanese, also helped create that sense of Taiwan identity. It's quite possible if that regime had not been so discriminatory and it treated Taiwanese the same as Chinese, that, they, that the position in Taiwan today might be different. So I'm not sure it's so much the US other than providing a framework which enables the people in Taiwan to have the discussions and, and to have the discussions and then the consequent trends which come about. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? I might be wrong. I'm not, I, I want to stress, you know, I've been, I grew up here, but I haven't lived here for almost 40 years. So just coming in and out and reading things. Um, and I'm not sure I'm on your Department of Homeland Security's good list right now. I just came in and had some trouble. So hopefully a piece will come you out in one of the newspapers. You, you have a beard. Well, what happened was I came in and they said, why are you coming? And I said, I'm speaking in Washington and I'm mentoring a conference in Wisconsin and I'm seeing my family and what's your specialty? And I said, Asian studies. And we're on for quite a while. And then at the end, he said, have you ever been arrested? And I said, yes. As soon as I said, yes, stand there. And then I was taken to another room where we had to go through a locked door and another hour. And for the first time in my life, I was asked had I ever renounced my American citizenship which I didn't, couldn't really answer. But I didn't go to an American office and renounce it. And um, they, they said, uh, did you feel, foreigners, at least among 38 so-called democratic states, get in a, can do an electronic fill-in form, which is a visa waiver. It's called your ESTA form, E-S-T-A. And I filled in the ESTA form. They said, well, did you say you had been arrested or convicted of a crime? And I said, I would have filled in the ESTA form very carefully. And um, the ESTA form, part B, says, have you ever been arrested or convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude or controlled substance? And the answer for me was no, because I was involved with mediating between the students and the police, and the police beat, the sh beat me up pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, and um, I was charged with assault and resisting arrest, and I was convicted. And then I received what's called a certificate of relief from disabilities from the court that had convicted me, which meant I wasn't supposed to have any faults, but I had been arrested, so I answered yes. Well, anyway, these guys in, in, in Homeland Security said, no, the question doesn't say what you're saying it is. It's just, have you ever been arrested or convicted of an offense? And I said, I'm sorry, you've misread it. And uh, I, I, I'm, no, I'm right in reading it. Uh, and I think Homeland Security needs to do a bit more propagandizing on what its own materials say. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, actually it's better than it used to be. We would come in 
during the Bush administration, just after they were set up, and they had these forms that were incomprehensible. And you know, first of all, we just go in and try, hope you did the right thing. Then the Bush administration, instead of changing the forms and making them so that they were readable, put people in line so that as you came through the line, they'd ask you to fill in, you know, they'd help you fill in the forms, tell you what it really meant. Uh, so having the simpler forms now is an improvement, but there's still some problems. And I was assured now, because when you come in as a foreigner, you put your fingers on the thing and they check your fingerprints. Every time your fingerprints check, you're going to have to come to a room like this one. I said, I'm going to Montreal to visit my daughter and I'm coming back. Um, is this going to happen? They said, yes. I said, can't you put a note in the thing? And they said, no. So I don't know. Anyway. We're working on a machine. Look into your soul. All right. <laughs> uh, just Homeland Security does have some problems, though. And just one, one, one last point. If anyone from the Central Party School in Beijing is uh, listening to this discussion, one of the points we always like to uh, plant with them whenever we can is the example of the decision of Deng Jingguo and the Kuomintang to abandon the position of uh, absolute power and orderly transition has worked out not badly, not badly for them as a model for future uh, uh, political reform in China. Note that the Kuomintang did not have to answer for its crimes against the people of Taiwan, got to keep all of its money and gets to compete in elections. You know, sometimes it wins and sometimes it loses, but it's, it's, uh, it, it has pretty good modes of envy. Kind of like what happened in South Africa, which is another example we like to use of the clerk sort of realizing that you can come to some understanding which preserves a position to a certain degree, give up a lot, but uh, it didn't have to answer for its, uh, the apartheid didn't have to answer for its crimes pretty much against people of South Africa, got to keep, uh, you know, a goodly amount of its money. And, and, and certain motives for Vendi has worked out. So for us, this is a fine solution to all of these um, problems. I disagree with you on this. Can oh, I? really? Yeah. Good. I think we have to draw a big distinction between liberalization and democratization. Agree. And under Jiang Jingguo, there never was democratization. It was only liberalization. There were never free elections, for example, for uh, all the parliamentarians in Taiwan. And under Jiang Jingguo, as I said, no, no Taiwanese ever held all those positions, ever. And uh, under Jiang Jingguo, the majority of the Central Standing Committee and the Cabinet were always mainlanders. So the change took place afterwards, and I think that's really important. He liberalized, he made some things easier, but he didn't democratize. And the other thing, which is in looking at Taiwan's democratization, and I've written a book called Democratizing Taiwan, published in 2012, if you want it. Uh, one of the criticisms I have is that there was not a reconciliation uh, commission like in South Africa. Right. In South Africa, if you'd done some horrible things and you apologized, you might be forgiven or you might be forgiven but given a jail sentence. In Taiwan, that never took place. And to me, a key example was Wang Xiling. Wang Xiling was the person that ordered the murder of Zhang Nan, who was murdered in California in 1985. And the reason we know that Wang Xiling and others were involved was because it was in the United States. The FBI was bugging, bugging people. So we found out. And um, Wang Xining was arrested. He was put in the Jingmei prison, which is where all the Kaohsiung incident prisoners were. But the Kaohsiung incident prisoners were in really unpleasant conditions. You can go visit it today and see how they were 12 to a room. Wang Xining had a four-room house to himself. And um, they built a special house for him. 
And furthermore, there was another small building, which is now used for storage, where he was able to receive his lady friends. So Wang Xiling was not in a proper, was not actually uh, dealt with in a cruel way, or he wasn't properly punished. And furthermore, when he turned 80, there was a huge celebration for his birthday, where all the sort of people from the old government came and celebrated with him. So I, I, I think the failure to have a reconciliation commission, there's one that's informal, but not a, not a right. formal government, is a major failing of, of the just power. I'm just point that there are models to get out of, ways to get yeah. out of this, that, that if you fear that if you are the Communist Party of China, and if you fear that all of you are going to be, uh, you know, hung up upside down by your heels for all these awful things you've done, and, uh, you know, this is kind of dilemma that you can't let go of power yeah. because you'll wind up like Mr. and Mrs. Ceausescu. And... Um, there, there, there you are. All right, listen, well, we thank, uh, we thank Bruce especially for coming. We thank all of you for coming. Uh, we hope that you will spread the word far and wide that people should pay attention to what he's got to say. And, and uh, who knows? We'll get it written into the plank, not of the next platform of one of the parties, but maybe in eight years. Well, if you can do both parties next time, no, that'd be great. I, I dream on. Okay. Thank you all. Thank all of you.